I recently stumbled upon an excerpt of a 1926 interview with Nikola Tesla. And here is his picture, a very dapper gentleman in his day. He was a legendary inventor and innovator. And this interview originally appeared in Collier's magazine, and I want to share it with you. He writes, he writes, when wireless technology is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of a real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though we were face to face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will be amazingly simple compared with our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. Now this is 1926. And here we are, about 100 years later, and most of what Mr. Tesla said has come true. And sure enough, I have within, not my vest pocket, that may be one of the few things that he got wrong in his prediction, that most men are not wearing vests these days, but in my pants pocket, I have a, a tiny device that allows me to talk to somebody thousands of miles away on our globe. He said that 100, almost 100 years ago, and most of it has come to pass. My point in sharing that story is, you don't need the ability to peer into the future to see certain things coming. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a fortune teller to be able to predict coming, certain coming events and happenings. When the Apostle Paul meets with the elders from the church at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, he is heading back to Jerusalem and they have a very tearful, emotional meeting on the coast. They come out to meet him. And it's tearful and emotional because they all know this is the last time they're going to see one another. This is about 57 AD, mind you. And this is Paul's last lecture. These are his final words with this group of elders. And in this in these remarks, Paul says, among other things, in verse 28 of Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering, this is verse 31, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So be vigilant, elders, shepherds, be watchful. Look out, because there are fierce wolves who are going to come into your midst, and they are going to teach a different doctrine than what you have received. This was 57 A.D., well, sure enough, when Paul writes to Timothy, 
We are in 1 Timothy for this series of sermons. When Paul writes to Timothy, who is stationed in Ephesus at around 62 to 64 AD, this is just five to seven years later, he says to him, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So sure enough, in just half a decade to a decade's time, what Paul warned would happen has happened. And by the way, Paul did have the gift of prophecy, and he did receive um, the ability to see into the future by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't require that gift to be able to see what was coming. Others could have seen that as well. And sure enough, just a few years later, what Paul said would happen has happened. Timothy is there, and Paul is telling him right out of the gate, some of the first words in this letter to Timothy, you charge those people among you who dare to proclaim a different gospel, a different doctrine than the one that was delivered to you, you charge them not to. And church leaders today are charged, and that includes elders. Paul talked to the elders of Ephesus, of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20. It includes preachers. Timothy's a preacher, an evangelist, a servant of the church, youth ministers, deacons, Bible class teachers, etc., etc. We really are all charged with making sure that sound doctrine is being declared. Because the church is always at risk of compromising her convictions. There is false teaching always waiting in the wings to come out. There are false teachers lurking around every quarter waiting to pounce. I don't say this to, to make you afraid. I'm just saying it was a reality in the New Testament church. And it is a reality today. And it has been a reality in every era of human history. And you don't have to be a fortune teller. And you don't have to be able to predict the future. You don't have to be a prophet to know that it's coming. Now let's talk about this phrase, sound doctrine, a little bit. Because, as I mentioned on Facebook in plugging this sermon yesterday, this phrase, sound doctrine, in some quarters of Christianity has fallen on hard times. And to some Christians, this phrase sounds too formal, uh, or stuffy, sound doctrine. Or worse, it's taken on a purely negative uh, association in their mind. And maybe it's because some people through the years, in their definition of sound doctrine, have included within that matters of opinion. You know, they have, have not just associated sound doctrine with what the Scriptures teach, but with also what they think. And maybe it's also because that some people have a negative view of this phrase. That in some definitions of sound doctrine, certain marks of faithfulness have been elevated to the neglect of others. Maybe there's a preacher who is recognized as being sound. But, you know, you get to know him in person and he's, well, he's sort of a jerk. And he's rude. Well, certainly, sound doctrine 
must include growing in Christian character, right? Or maybe there's a church who views itself as sound, and yet they haven't baptized somebody in a decade. Well, surely sound doctrine also includes evangelism and the winning of souls. We visited a church, a congregation one time when I was a kid and talking to a lady in the lobby and she said, we are the last sound church in this area. And, you know, now as I think about it, I think, hmm, that's sort of a, that's kind of a puffed up thing to say. Surely humility and a humble attitude go hand in hand with sound doctrine. We should rid ourselves of our, what I'm getting to is, we should rid ourselves of a negative view of this phrase, sound doctrine, if we have one. And I've acknowledged that, that maybe some faulty definitions of that have brought that about, but I, I, want to, I, I want to recast this phrase in a positive way because the New Testament uses it a lot, number one, and number two, it uses it in, in a, a, a positive way, a helpful way, a constructive way. Sound doctrine could also be translated as healthy teaching. It's an important concept in the New Testament. And by sound doctrine, when, when I talk about this, when the Bible talks about this, it's talking about the gospel message. And it's talking about just simply solid biblical instruction that will lead to healthy faith and love in our lives. So this is a good concept. It's a helpful concept. It's a positive concept. Healthy teaching. Church leaders today are charged with making sure that sound doctrine, that healthy teaching is being declared. Why? Because as I said earlier, the church is always at risk of compromising her convictions. If you look at what Timothy says in the tail end of this letter in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, as Paul is closing out, he hits on this idea again. This is a big emphasis in Paul's letter to Timothy in this first letter. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit. That's another, word, uh, another term for sound doctrine, the gospel message, healthy teaching. Guard what was delivered to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith by following after false teachers, by following after false doctrine. Some people have swerved from the faith. Now, the, the image that I have in mind, which, of course, Paul and Timothy would not, is of a car driving down the interstate. Imagine the church as that car and the leaders at the wheel. And at any point, we are at risk of running that car to, to the left-hand side or the right-hand side of the road into the ditch. We can swerve away from the path that is laid out for us from the straight and narrow and swerve off into, into a ravine, into disaster. Paul is warning Timothy here, don't let that happen. It, it was true then, this possibility, this potentiality, it's true now. What we believe matters. Sound doctrine matters. And that's why Paul starts his letter with this charge in chapter 1, verse 3. Charge them, certain people, in your midst not to teach any different doctrine. But what kind of false teaching is going on? Well, let's keep reading here. In chapter 1, verse 4, we find Paul say, uh, in, in verse 3 he says, charge them not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths. 
In the New Testament, this term myth was a negative term for beliefs that were fanciful, that were untrue, that were deceptive. It's repeated again in chapter 4, verse 7. When Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So the contrast to that, instead of embracing myths, train yourself for godliness. It's repeated again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 14, where Paul talks about Jewish myths. So maybe what is in mind here are Jewish myths fables or tales that were circulated, that were part of the tradition that certain people uh, in Ephesus were embracing. Paul says, tell them to avoid that. Also in chapter 1, verse 4, endless genealogies. What does that mean? We don't know for sure, but probably the speculative use of Old Testament family trees. You know, it was very important to Jews to know to whom they were related in the Old Testament. And maybe you had people trying to uh, imaginatively draw their family tree back to some famous Old Testament figure. Paul says they don't need to worry about that. And then a little bit later in verses 6 and 7, we find that certain ones were engaging in vain discussion. These were those who wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand what they were talking about. Paul talks more about how to view the law in verses 8 through 11. So, I say all that to say, our best guess of what was happening in the church in Ephesus, what sort of false teaching uh, was being disseminated, it was probably some kind of philosophy with a Jewish flavor. Some sort of way of thinking that was colored with Jewish elements. However, the emphasis in this passage is not on what the false teaching was, Or who the false teachers were, but on the effect that the false teaching was having in their lives. The result of it. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The second part of verse 4, Paul says, Tell them not to devote themselves to myths and genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul makes makes a contrast here. And he says, whereas true Christian doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy teaching, promotes stewardship, this idea... That it has been entrusted to us a very precious message. The message of the gospel. And God expects us to pass that along to others. Stewardship. A clear-headed commitment to advancing the kingdom. That is what true doctrine promotes or creates. In contrast to that, false doctrine, Paul says, promotes speculation. And confusion. And doubt. And whereas true Christian doctrine, Paul says, creates love. Love that, according to verse 5, issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. False doctrine creates meaningless debate and division. So what Paul is saying here is similar to what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7. And that is, false teaching 
false doctrine is often evidenced by its rotten fruit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, and you will recognize them by their fruits. Do grapes come from thorn bushes? No. Figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You will know them, false teachers, you will know it, false doctrine, by its rotten fruit. And Paul expounds on the bad fruit that is born out of false teaching. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, a little bit later in this, in this book, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Paul really digs in here. And he elaborates on what he had earlier told Timothy. You charge those folks teaching that bad stuff to not do it anymore. That different doctrine. And it reminds us that when we see a preacher, I'll pick on my own type to begin, a preacher who greedily pads his own pockets and lives in extreme luxury with little regard for the needy, you can assume that some false and unhealthy teaching has been embraced somewhere in the background. When you see a Christian who is pleasant in person, but whose online persona is crude and cruel, well, that's some bad fruit. And it's probably brought about by some false teaching. Maybe not from their pulpit, but it was picked up elsewhere along the way. From some source, when you see a husband or wife who just up and abandons their spouse and children because God wants them to be happy, then you can probably assume that somewhere along the way they've bought into some unhealthy, unsound doctrine. When you see a fellow believer who espouses a philosophy, a theory, that is a matter of opinion, but they want to bind that as a salvation issue, as a fellowship issue on other Christians, there's some unsound doctrine going on behind that. When you see a member of the church seeking to form a faction and pit one group against the other in the body, the one body of Christ, somebody trying to sow discord, then they've probably gotten a hold of some bad, unsound teaching or doctrine. That's some rotten fruit that results from false teaching. And Paul says to Timothy, you charge them not to teach a different doctrine that produces ungodly results. One product of sound teaching is godliness. But this stuff that we've been talking about is ungodliness. I love how the message paraphrase puts the, the verse, uh, one of the verses here. It has Paul saying, and this is a paraphrase, pull people back into the center. People are getting distracted. They are focusing on tangential stuff 
marginal stuff. stuff, Some stuff that has no place within the body of Christ, and, and they're being drawn away by that. You, Timothy, pull them back into what is central, deepening faith and obedience. And we need to remember, ultimately, that sound doctrine is not ultimately found in a set of principles. It's found in a particular person. In Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that He is the center and the source of sound teaching. And I believe along with that, this includes the remaining documents of the New Testament. Which came about as the continued revelation of the Holy Spirit. Promised by Jesus before He left the earth. In John chapter 14, verse 26. Sound doctrine is not a principle, but a person. It's Jesus Christ. And the antidote to false teaching is the same now as it was in those days. It is ever-growing trust in and obedience to Christ. It is to trust and obey Jesus. That's why right after this section, Paul goes into, well, the text we talked about last week. When he says, I thank Him. I thank Jesus. Because He is at the center of my faith. Now this series is called Everyday Discipleship. And we're talking about how we are disciples of Jesus before we're anything else. And how being disciples affects everything else that we are. So how can we stay focused on Him every day? Well, we ought to pray that our eyes are fixed on Him and His ways and His will each day. As we go throughout our lives, we ought to filter every thought, every idea, every philosophy through our faith. In Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive to obey Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. Test everything. Don't let anything get by your filter. Don't let anything circumvent it. Pass everything through the lens of your faith. And then every day serve. Do something good in the name of Christ. In fact, Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord. There is an irony in our passage. In 1 Timothy. It's possible that these false teachers. Who were introducing this stuff. Thought that these practices. Complemented their faith. Enhanced it. But in fact Paul says no. They have compromised their faith. And it's a reminder to us that we do not grow in faith by seeking out new, novel ways of thinking and living, but by circling back to the one that we've always known. To the one that we trusted in in the beginning, to Jesus Christ, but with deeper understanding and with greater devotion. You see, the danger of false teaching is that it pulls our eyes towards things that play no role in our salvation. I think what Paul is trying to say here is remind them that they are saved, they are only saved by Jesus Christ and by their faithful obedience to Him. By Him and nothing else. Nothing else can contribute to their salvation. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd who according to Him lays down His life so that we can have abundant life. And if you want to Give your life to Him this morning. If you want to place your faith in Him, we invite you to do that right now as we stand and sing.
my prayer.